Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring hosts Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here is Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 23, being recorded on Tuesday, April 19th, 2016. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as always, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, how are you doing today? I am doing terrific. Happy Earth Day. Same to you. It's a pretty interesting podcast. Yeah, this is another first for the Jason and Scott Show. For the first time ever, you and I are in the same room recording live. We've been in the same room together before, but this is the first time we've podcasted in the same room. A fair point. I wasn't sure you were willing to admit that, but I appreciate it. <laughs> I'll go on record. I'm, I'm not afraid to say that we've met before. Nice. I've enjoyed the majority of the times we've been in the room together by a slim margin. And even more exciting, we have a special guest who's also in the room with us. Yeah, this is uh, – we're pretty excited. This is a good get, as they say in the biz. Um we're excited to have Billy May, who is also live in the room. So it's the first time all three of us have been live in a room on a podcast together, although we have been in the room together before not podcasting. It was that bathhouse. Yep. Uh, we Billy, have drunk beverages together. <laughs> Many. We have. Yes. Yes. True. Uh, yeah, mostly water. Uh, Billy is the senior vice president uh, and general manager of digital e-commerce and corporate development at Abercrombie & Fitch. He also, I'm going to go on record, I think he has the longest title of anyone we've had on the show. So we'll, we'll go have a researcher dig into that, but I'm 98% sure. Um, Billy's one of the top digital executives in retail, so we're really excited to have him here today. We're also on the shop.org board together and really excited and humbled to have Billy here with us today. Billy, welcome. Thank you. Appreciate you guys having me. Yeah. And we're in Washington, D.C., and we have a shop.org meeting tomorrow that we'll all be uh, at, and it's going to be pretty exciting meeting some of the other councils within the NRF. So it's kind of an interesting time in, in the shop.org world. Um, to get started, Billy, we've known you for a long time, but let's let's go kind of through a little background. Uh, what does the Senior Vice President and General Manager of Digital, E-Commerce, and Corporate Development do? And how did you get such a fancy title? I was hoping you'd tell me. Um <laughs> Uh, it means I'm responsible for basically all of our um, digital presence. So anything from uh, digital marketing, experience design, e-commerce, omnichannel, and then uh, recently corporate development includes wholesale, franchise, licensing, third-party, a whole bunch of other stuff because of emerging business models for us. Cool. Now, at your company, are these things kind of siloed? So there's like a digital silo and then a store silo, or they're kind of you cut across? Definitely cut across. Um, and that's always kind of been a matrix organization. Um, we really don't run the business as a as a vertical entity. It's a uh, singular brand. So whether it's online or in store, um, and so we we've organized our our business in such a way that allows us to. To drive the business digitally, but um, we're not structured or incentivized from a channel perspective. Got it. Do you report to the CEO, the CMO, um, a head of a CEO of digital? How does that work? In the uh, previously, we were I reported to the CEO. Um, he retired a little over a year ago, and we have uh, been uh, managed by a, a an operating committee. Mm-hmm. Made up of our chairman, our COO, our president, uh, and our CFO, 
as well as our head of HR. And so you kind of report to a, a committee. Um, they, they'll make joint decisions based on what's best for the business. Uh, it seems to work fairly well. Um, if there are issues, uh, we're a fairly apolitical environment, so they tend to get raised and addressed pretty quickly. Good, good. And then you've had a long storied, um, not even your own career, but your whole family has like retail in your DNA. What, you know, share with us some of the, you know, I always envision you wearing a little apron working in a general store as a child or something like that. Tell, tell us a little bit about your your family's history and, and interactions with retail. It's actually not not too far from the truth, but you're not. Um, Did you have a beard? I always imagine you being a little kid with a beard, though, because <laughs> I can't picture you without a beard. <laughs> So it's a weird mental image. <laughs> I, I, I didn't, but you know, I was the twelve-year-old who you know had facial hair. No, I'm just kidding. Um, my uh, my great grandfather started a, a a men's retail um store, uh, specialty business, um, like a haberdashery. Haberdashery. Uh, he followed the oil boom uh, to Oklahoma. Uh, opened a store with his brothers that expanded. They opened a, a number of other stores. My grandfather eventually. Uh, took over the business, and then my father did. So I literally grew up. What was that called? Retail. Was it like called, Mays? It was called May Brothers. May Brothers. Um, and it uh, lasted for 99 years. So my father uh, finally retired. Uh, I started my career uh, in retail, decided that I, I wanted to um, give large-scale retail a chance. I started in the May Company, um, actually in D.C. Um, Jason's laughing because, yes, it is May, and did people think you owned the company when you started to work there? I uh, I only used that to my advantage once when a vendor wouldn't ship me something and it got shipped. So um, I'm desperately trying to get a job at Goldberg's Deli right now. So I appreciate the thought. I, I, I imagine that you might have an in there. We we shall see. Well, you had Fab. <laughs> that that right. was one of the many uh, more influential <laughs> Jason Goldbergs in the e-commerce industry. <laughs> I'm proud to say I, I feel like I'm in the top three. Yeah, yeah. That's because there are three. Exactly. <laughs> well, thanks for pointing that out. No problem. You're, you're a true friend. Dr. Obvious. No problem. Uh, okay, so then you went to May, and then what happened? Um, so I, I started my career in the uh, executive training program, moved up uh, into a buying role, and um, back in the, I'll call it the mid-1990s, the epicenter for the internet was actually Washington, D.C. Most people don't realize that, but you had AOL based here, you had CompuServe and Prodigy based here, you had... MCI based here, UUNet moved up and they were based here. You had the Telecom Reform Act, 1996, which deregulated all the um, the CLEX and most of the long haul telecom carriers. And I kind of got bitten by that. And so I left and went to a, a regional startup that was going national called Digex, D-I-G-E-X, and helped them uh, build and um, start a, a website management group, um, companies that would outsource uh, there were management of their their websites, and um, so it's kind of like early hosting firm. Early hosting, and, um, but it was all managed. So rather than you you bring, uh, they, they'll bring the ping power pipe. You bring the the software, put it on your box. They would actually it was cloud before you called it, it cloud. Was cloud before it was cloud. It was called application hosting. We had like a really weird yeah. name for it before SaaS and cloud. It was like I forget, I can't remember the acronym, but there was like a weird application hosting thing. Absolutely, <laughs> and that was the early days and. Um, that started my journey, you know, on the digital side and then, um, left, went back to business school, was in consulting for a number of years and then moved back on to the retail side, uh, at Lowe's was at Lowe's and helped build their e-commerce business. Um, did a, a tour of duty at Sears Holdings for, um, about a year and a half. Then was at Adidas group 
and led their global digital team. Uh, and finally at Abercrombie. So I've been there the last five and a half years. Cool. And then within Abercrombie, I don't know if everyone understands, but there's not only just the Abercrombie brand. What are some of the, the other brands that are in that family? So there's actually, um, there, it's a portfolio of kind of four brands. There's Abercrombie and Fitch, which is the adult brand. There's Abercrombie Kids, which is uh, obviously a kid's brand. Uh, there's Hollister, which is uh, a more um, teen-focused Scott and I are in Hollister right now. Pretty much, yes. You, yeah. you didn't realize that, but um, the surfboards were kind of a giveaway. Um, and uh, the last one's Gilly Hicks, which was an Intimates brand that we started a number of years ago that um, we're, we're considering what to do with. Okay. So you're head of digital of this kind of portfolio of brands. What are some of the big strategic initiatives that you can share with us, um, you know, short-term and then maybe medium-term? Probably um, probably the most significant was the the mobile journey that we – kind of embarked on in 2012 there was a lot of activity in and around uh what to do with with mobile and and apps we went through a a a fairly invasive evaluation processes did we want to build it did we want to outsource it did we want to go apps do we want to go mobile web and we made the decision we were going to go mobile web we were going to build it ourselves and um that's been a fortuitous decision for us it's um, mobile now represents almost two thirds of our digital traffic. Um, it's uh, almost a, a third of our digital revenue. Um, we're seeing growth that's you know five times what we're seeing um, in in other uh, devices, desktop especially. Conversion um, strong and improving. So, um, given our customer, which it tends to be a younger customer, um, that decision was a, a, a fairly fortuitous one. And we did it, I would say, um, at the expense of apps. So we, we made a strategic decision not to invest in apps at the early stage. Um, and now we're going back and, and kind of doing a reset on apps. How are they going to integrate in with our CRM strategy and emerging loyalty and rewards uh, program that we've been piloting for the last 12 months? That'll be highly integrated in apps. So we wanted to make sure that we had a strong foothold with our customer given um, that the majority of their um, time spent is in mobile, that we needed to be relevant to them in mobile. So that was um, that was a significant one. And then um, the, the, the next kind of out um, – the next strategy out of that was, was, was omnichannel, which I hate using that word, but really around connecting um, the customer and inventory across channels. So getting a single view of the customer, getting a single view of inventory, getting a single view of transaction and being able to broker an order regardless of location, whether it's um, an an order online, a ship from store, an order in store, um, or um, a couple of different scenarios that we're working through right now. Um, And and a lot of that's driven through mobile. So – the, the mobile economics and dynamics are a little bit different. So you might have a, a, a smaller average order value or a smaller UPT. So I want to be able to get it to you faster because your expectations are faster. So I might, depending on location, I might source that order from your store and have it available. Um, I could have it from ship complete from another store. I could ship it from the DC. Um, so that's creating improved inventory productivity and uh, creating improved customer satisfaction. The goal is is that over time, um, that'll lead to greater customer value, lifetime value. So th- those two pieces are are I would say things that have really kind of fueled our growth. Um, 
they've sustained us, you know, as, as our brands kind of evolve and our customer continues to evolve. Um, and most importantly, our group, we always like to say that our group is focused on the customer and we work backwards. Whereas other parts of the business might start with product or um, with the brand and work creatively towards the customer. So we bring that customer insight, that customer point of view, and bring that back to the rest of the organization, um, oftentimes meeting in the middle, so to speak, on what the um, what the appropriate strategy or path forward is with the customer. Yeah. Very cool. Um, one of the things I'm always curious about is Abercrombie is one of the great, iconic American brands, super well-known. You operate one of the highest traffic sites in e-commerce. Um, I imagine there has to be a lot of competition for the customer messaging on that site. Like that site obviously has the job to sell stuff and drive transactions, but it also seems like one of the most important flagships for your brand. Like, is there a conflict there? And how how do you guys manage that? I think it's a balance. Um, You know, clearly we want uh, to connect emotionally with our customer, which is around strong brand creative and brand content. Um, we also, uh, we need to be relevant from uh, an assortment strategy and make sure that we're connecting with the customer in that regard. And, and occasionally we have to promote product. Um, so I think it's a, it's a healthy balance. Um, one of the nuances in mobile is an increasing amount of traffic doesn't flow through your homepage. So you spend a lot of time curating your message and you're creative on the homepage, but the customer is actually entering much deeper in. So what is the implication from a product detail page? How do you think of the product detail page as the window into the brand? So um, you're registering um, on figure photography, you're registering content, you're registering ratings and reviews, you're registering user-generated content because that is their, um, that is their, their pathway into the brand. And I think that... Um, Focusing on the things that matter most to them, which we do through testing, we do through um, some third-party tools that we use on site to uh, quantitatively measure satisfaction and correlations to improving um, satisfaction. But um, equally as important is, is are we representing our uh, our brand, our look, our, our, our feel, our point of view, most importantly – um, to the end consumer, and that needs to be consistent regardless of where they interact with us. And so it's a healthy balance um, between kind of the art and science. Um, and as a specialty brand, we we can't um, over-index towards science because we need to make sure that creatively it's got our point of view, but by the same token, we can't over-index on the art because um, we need to actually sell some products. reasonably important. Absolutely. And that's a particularly great point. It's it's funny how often uh, folks will will debate and agonize over that content on the homepage when, like, in reality, like, the, the majority of visitors parachute into those product detail pages and other pages. So we, we sometimes give clients advice to concede some of the arguments on that homepage and, and uh, in exchange make sure that they get the, the right content on the, those PDPs. I've received that counsel from you in the past on occasion it's it's impressive the smart people that you get advice from i feel like that that really uh shows well for you billy i i i, I might not look smart but i surround myself with smart people <laughs> um 
You mentioned the ship from store program a little bit, and that's obviously like something we see most with more digitally mature brands. Um, I'd be curious, you know, one of the things we talk about a lot with ship from store is uh, obviously it puts that makes that inventory work harder, but it also often means you're shipping products a shorter distance to customers that's usually cheaper and also causes the goods to get there faster. So that those are the typical upsides we talk about. The downsides is it can be really disruptive to the in-store staff and labor model. And I'm, I'm curious, like, do you guys feel like you've, you've nailed it and that you, you get those benefits and overcome those challenges or is that still a work in progress for you or where are you in that, that, maturation curve i i would definitely not say that we've we've mastered it i would say it's a work in progress we um we we did a a fair amount of of testing to ensure that we could provide um a superior customer experience for the end consumer and not be disruptive in the store so our business case and business model was predicated on incremental staffing so how many orders could a store support given inventory and labor if we gave them a certain amount of of um, of time in the store that was supported uh, through the business case, and I would say that that's proven beneficial. It certainly mitigates any friction with the store where you're just dumping more work on a taxed uh, labor model. So if we're going to push more more volume through the box, we want to make sure that they're getting the staff to support it. Um, unique to our culture is the fact that, you know, it's rising tides raises all boats. We we're not incentive based on, on channels. So um, it's to the store's benefit. It's to our benefit. We want to satisfy the customer. And so there's a lot of shared goals and objectives. Probably the biggest challenge is, is ensuring that we've got the right inventory in the right place. If you, if you had that at the outset, you wouldn't actually need, any of the omnichannel programs because you'd have the inventory correct. And so um, if you've got a customer who's in Minnesota that wants shorts and you might not have shorts anymore, you still have it. It's just in the wrong place. How can I get it to them um, quickly? And I would say that's an evolving process. And that's something that um, we're going to continue to focus on and refine as a company. One, uh, one omni-channel question, uh, a lot of, a lot of retailers are putting these kind of iPads or they're arming the associates with more technology to provide that kind of one view of the customer. Have you guys done any of that? We definitely have. Um, that our associates have access to transaction information. Um, they can look up information on the site. They can order product and ship it for free in store. We haven't gotten to the point where we're testing clienteling. It's, um, we want to make sure that one that's relevant to our particular customer, which it, it may or may not be. But we also want to build applications and capabilities that empower the associate and help solve problems rather than just kind of arming them with more information and data. Yeah. And so for listeners that may not know, what is, what is your definition of client telling? Uh, client telling might be, you, you know, you're a, a registered user. I know what you bought, maybe what you browsed, and I can recommend information to you or I can recommend items or um, things that might go with what you bought previously, et cetera. It, 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 very common in, in, in luxury. I think they're, um, you know, you'll hear book of business and uh, arming the customer with that sort of information. We have that. So we have a single view of the customer across all channels. It's just a question of how we use that data in a responsible way that, that um, 
supports the customer journey. And I would say that for our customer in our segment, um, we're not in, entirely sure, but we are very much focused on arming the associate with the right information. Um, how can they be um, smarter to better serve the customer? And um, we're, we're, we're thinking about that broader ecosystem and who the actual customer is a little bit differently. So I'll give you an example. We might actually build a purpose um, – uh, we might build a very specific purpose app for our associate, thinking about the associate as a customer um, and what information we need to serve up to them so that they can better serve uh, a customer in a store. So um, that changes the context from, I like to say, from 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 e-commerce is, is a vertical function, what we call direct-to-consumer, to digital is more of a horizontal capability and enabler mm-hmm. that spans across um, channels, and I would say we're we're beginning to move down that path uh, as a as a company. Cool. Another one that we Jason and I kind of debate a lot is the future of the retail store. And there's a couple kind of things in there. You know, sometimes we see news articles and and they kind of counteract each other. Sometimes they'll say millennials don't go to the malls, and other times they say millennials go to the mall, but it's kind of a social thing. Um, and then that gets us, we spend a lot of time thinking about what is the future of the store and does it look like, do all stores kind of morph into an Apple store where you're really just kind of trying on stuff and then it gets fulfilled? Um, Jason's obsessed with digital price tagging and that kind of stuff. Uh, so as the guy that thinks about digital, what's, you know, what do you think the store of the future looks like? Where, where do you see these trends? And not necessarily you know, what, what A&F is, but like you're, you know, if you were to kind of guess five to ten years from now, what do what stores look like? What, what's your take on that? It's... Um I mean, if you look back five years ago and you look at stores today, they're, they haven't evolved significantly. So five years from now, they'll, they'll evolve, but I'm not sure they're going to be, you know, it's not going to be science fiction per se. But I do think that, that stores play a role. Certainly you're seeing pure plays move offline. The largest pure play is moving offline. Um, so I, I think stores play a role in that customer journey. It's a question of where and and what. And I think that, our target customer, who's younger, um, is is looking for more than just a transactional experience. They're looking for um, things that are relevant to them. They're looking for things that um, uh, attach themselves from a, a lifestyle standpoint or can embed themselves in their life. They're looking for experiences, and you'll hear that a lot. And, and what does that actually mean? Does that mean you're going to do in-store concerts? Are you going to do in-store events? Are you is it in-store theater? Um, I, I don't know. And it yep. may not be the same everywhere. So what works in Tulsa might not work in Chicago, which may be different than what works in L.A. And so I think that you know, the gases are swirling, but the planets haven't formed. What I don't think it's going to be is a lot of um, moving objects and touchscreens and um, – I. I, I think fitting rooms is a is a great you know area to focus on, but is it a large capital expense like an interactive fitting room, or is it a very simple app that uh, calls for you know assistance and I can get a different size? I, I think that you know you, you want to test and learn in both um, to better understand it. But the interactive fitting room might work at our flagship store in New York, but we might not be able to afford to put it in you know another three, 400 stores. So I think that the, that the, the store is going to, there are going to be multiple 
iterations of the store. If you actually think of an Apple store, other than the product that's open, there there really isn't a lot kind of there. It's a yeah. lot of people, and you can bring your device in and some of the other pieces. But you don't see interactive touchscreens. You're not seeing, you know, kind of the the minority report science fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're testing a, a massive video screen. But be, beyond that, it's 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 fairly clean. And so to me, the best store of the future is the one that takes – Technology and I'll use technology as as software and makes it very seamless, as opposed to taking technology and make it obtrusive. And um, I would say that you know it's it's not clear at this point you know who's got a better mousetrap, but it's exciting um, because that's that's a lot of uh, it's a big sandbox to play in. Yeah. When I, I always, when I go to the mall, I always like to walk in a Hollister cause it's got this very interesting, you know, the lighting is a certain way. It's got the design on the outside. It has like an odor, like there must be some scent that they have that, you know, and then just the way the product is laid out and the, the furniture, then the screen that shows you surf city is pretty cool. There's always a live view of surf city, California. Huntington Beach, um, yeah. And then I found it's actually pretty good for music discovery. So I've found like a couple of cool bands just kind of from going in there and, and, now there's like an interactive playlist kind of thing. It used to be I would browse the CDs back in the day. Uh, now there's an interactive playlist, and, and I think it even shows people, customers can go and pick, and it shows you the top spins in that store, which is kind of, you know, that's part of that interesting experience that's there. Yeah, I think so there's that, a discovery component. That's kind of what you're Yeah, so homework on. for all of our listeners is that that's kind of an interesting, you know, I think you guys were one of the first ones to nail that experiential piece there. Then now other folks have taken it to another level, like Lululemon, where you actually have the yoga classes in there, or Sir Latab with the cooking classes. And um, But that it's a really cool experience to go in there, and it's very consistent, too, no matter where you are. The only thing that changes is the playlist and the size of the screen. You know, some of the stores have really giant screens, Ours in North Carolina is a little tiny screen. So. And it's, it's, it's evolving. The new store format has a large video screen in the front of the store. It's, it's glass and open. It's not, you know, guys on one side, girls on the other. It's, a, it's an open format. But a lot of what we call the brand senses remain, you know, in that same format. So um, how, it, how it looks, which in many respects is lighting, how it smells, um, the, the product, how it feels, the sound, which is the music. And to some degree, um, you know, the, the, the fragrance that you, you, you smell in the store, which we've toned down. Um, but all of those brand senses create a different experience and a unique experience. And how do you drive that discovery while you're in there, whether it's product, whether it's music, whether it's culture, whether whatever it is, how do you make that experience memorable? And when they leave, how do you get them to take that experience with them? And that's something that we're spending a lot of time thinking about and then more importantly how do we how do we brand and communicate that um, you know digitally I wanted to pile on for a second because I I totally agree with you Billy I just did an interview in an article this week there's a lot of these buzzy digital that I things I call novelties mm-hmm. that get a lot of ink in retail stores and the, the magic mirrors and the dressing room tech and, you know, the VR showrooms and some of those like large format touchscreen stuff. And in general, they catch a ton of attention once, right? Like the first time the shopper walks in that store, it's a new novelty and it maybe gets a little attention. But, you know, if they're shopping your store every month, if they have a habit of visiting that mall, like pretty quickly, that super expensive display becomes wallpaper and isn't even noticed. Whereas... All of these technologies that you make available on the customer's mobile phone, that's a supercomputer with a beautiful screen that the customer pays for 
and brings with them to your store. And so the those tools that the customer can use on their own mobile device or that you make available on devices for the sales associate seem like they have a lot more bang for the buck and much easier ROI to pencil out. And I know you mentioned um, earlier that one of the things you're really looking at was those apps for the sales associate. And I that's one of my favorite digital tactics because the big controversy in apps, they can be really effective. The one huge problem is reach. It's very difficult to get consumers to download that app and then have it have enough juice on the home screen that it gets consistently used. And the one pool of people that you can very reliably get to, to download and use your app are your sales associates. So to me, building that great sales associate app makes a ton of sense. Your brand, I know there's a lot of gifting. Like you have some younger brands like Abercrombie Kids and Hollister, where I imagine gifting is even higher. You could certainly imagine clienteling would be super helpful for that gifting. I know in Hollister, you just started doing uh, ratings and reviews in the last year and uh, showing some of the the user-generated content from some of the imaging sites, I think Instagram. Indeed. And so could you imagine putting that kind of content on those sales associate apps to help make that available to all the folks that shop in your store? Yeah, I mean, I, our perspective is, is um, if an associate can access it as a consumer, they should access it as an associate when they're, when they're working, you shouldn't, shouldn't be walled off or walled garden content or a separate application. So the interface should be the same. And so we want to make sure that, that they, they have the ability um, to pull information up. Um, if they want to be able to contribute content, um, we want to activate our associates. How do you build a stronger community of your associates, of your consumers, so that it, it creates a broader ecosystem. Your point earlier on about in-store technology, and um, I would I would call it hardware versus software acts, uh, um, investments. The, the, the software investment is one that's easily deployed and updated. The hardware investment is is fixed and has to be depreciated over a, a period of time to get full value. And and especially for our customer and Hollister and in Abercrombie and Fitch. We, we like to say that the customer is heads down, not heads up. And they are, if you watch kids, just like uh, you know, Scott mentioned, if you're in the mall and you're watching kids walk around, even when they're with their friends, they're still heads down. They're not necessarily heads up. So when they're in the store, how can you arm them with information? And if you're an associate, how can they get similar information so that they can be most helpful? If you're trying something on and you don't have the time to buy it, how can I, how can I save that or encourage you to save it so you can access it later when you're home, almost like a saved cart, an abandoned cart like we have online? How can you have a similar application and capability in store? If you think about POS, POS is, is an app. Accessing loyalty in the store is an app. Um, being able to access your account is, is an app-like feature. So how do you um, how do you build those um, capabilities and functionality in such a way that it provides value back to the end consumer from an experience standpoint. Very cool. Uh, and I know you also talked earlier uh, about obviously the mobile in-store stuff, uh, mobile website, mobile app. Um, feels like the ecosystem is dramatically expanding now, though. Like obviously, there's a lot of buzz around. You know, hey, we can shop on the social networks. We can have purchase on Google on the on your PLAs. Um, you know, 
uh, Amazon and others have smart devices that now like auto replenish and things like that is, do you have to worry about that? Is that like part of the roadmap is all that distributed commerce and how do you sort of think about that? Uh, The the short answer is yes. Um, You know, if, if I'm asked uh, what keeps me up at night, the only thing that keeps me up at night are my kids. I actually sleep really well, but what gets me up in the morning are, are those sorts of opportunities. I think when you, when you look at where the customer um, is discovering content, it could be through voice. It could be through social. Um, it could be through third party. It could be in a lot of different areas that the question is where are they transacting? So first how do I get my brand in front of them and how do I drive discovery? And the second is, is how do I drive the transaction piece. And I would say it's becoming especially complex on how to manage that end-to-end experience in a, in a consistent way. How do I have the content necessary to support it? How do I have the capabilities to be able to manage it and scale it? And then most importantly, how can I drive, you know, value over time with the customer? And so, um, we, we, we have a, a list of, of, of potential target opportunities. We keep on our radar screen. What do we want to pursue? What do we not? Um, we're, we're, we'll generally take a fast follower strategy, so rarely bleeding edge, but we want to make sure that if it's something that we believe in, that it's something that we, we think is most important to our customers. So I, I think that it's probably not as much worry as it is um, exciting. It's what makes it interesting in our space. Um, it is a little daunting, you know, what, how do you separate the wheat from the chaff? Um, you know, do, do you, do you throw your brain out there and you just kind of do anything? So you'll go after buy buttons on any website and just see what, what you can catch from a brand standpoint. We would say that's not necessarily where we want to be. If it's where is our customer? So, uh, you know, a, a use case might be a, 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 a 12 year old who, um, asks, uh, Amazon Echo, what's the weather today? Um, it gets a response and says, oh, I need to, to change what I was going to wear because it sounds like it's going to be warmer than it was. They never pulled open a browser. They never opened their, um, you know, checked their phone. It was all through voice. So what's the implication for a brand and how do I get my brand or creative when it's not visual, it's, it's auditory, um, and I'm not probably not going to sell. I'm not going to say, Hey, you should wear the, you know, Hollister jeans today, but it, it, it could be, um, order status. It could be, Hey, don't forget today you have expiring points. It could be any of those things because that is becoming a customer's interface. And so that's probably the more important piece from our perspective is, is what is that interface for the brand? Uh, for that end-to-end experience, and how do we ensure that we're we're there and relevant? Cool. We were able to hit the social networks when we found out you're coming and get a couple of questions. So the next couple of topics are from uh, listeners of our podcast, um, of which there are a bounty of. Um, the first one is uh, kind of a pivot from what we've been talking about, and it's international, uh, specifically anything that you found that's working internationally. Uh, his background on that story, I've always assumed you guys are primarily U.S.-based with the stores. Um, maybe I'm wrong there. So what's the store footprint look like outside the U.S., and then what are some of the, the strategic things you guys have done in other countries? So uh, as a company, we operate in about 20 countries. 
Um, we, um, from a, a, a website standpoint, we, we operate 48 websites globally across all of our brands. About a third of our revenue is international. So, you know, we're $3.6, $3.7 billion. A third of that is, is international as a company. Um, so we have a, a fairly sizable international footprint, Europe, Asia, um, Canada. Um, we've launched franchise in Mexico. Um, so it's, uh, and we went international originally in, um, in the, in the late aughts. So we went to London first, um, in Canada, and then we expanded in, in continental Europe. So, um, we have a significant foothold in those markets. And I think probably the, the, the biggest aha to, to us was how do we be relevant to those customers in those markets, knowing that we run things centrally from, our headquarters in, in Columbus, Ohio. Um, and, you know, it's language, it's currency and payments. Um, and so how do we continually refine that experience? So you actually have separate sites. You don't do like a border free where you kind of have the U.S. site and then you downgrade into that. So it's total French experience, German experience, that kind of thing. Okay. Correct. Definitely the latter. Yeah. Um, and that includes in, in Asia. So Japan site, China site, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Singapore, I'm trying to think if I'm missing any. Um, and uh, the, the business took that point of view from the, from the start. And um, that doesn't mean that everything's, you know, the, the, the same. So it, payments or COD might be really important in a market, which are definitely not important in others. So how do you balance that portfolio to make sure that it's relevant to the customer in those markets? I would say that, um, we we made a, a decision a couple of years ago that we were going to put our Asia um, countries, which um, are are what we would say are merging, so they're high growth from us for us as a as a company. We're going to put them on a speedboat strategy, so we might put them on a different platform where we we have capabilities we can plug in that would allow us to accelerate growth. Um, that's been a, a fairly successful strategy. It 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 frees up internal resources to focus on business driving as opposed to 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 having to worry about business integration and, and user acceptance testing and a lot of that on a day to day basis. So that's been as, especially positive for us. And then um, the 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 highest growth market for us, which is now our our basically our third largest market, is China. Um, we have a, a a somewhat limited presence in. Um, A&F, we have a much more significant presence in Hollister. And it's the one market where we sell on a third-party marketplace digitally. So uh, we put the Hollister brand on the Tmall um, site because of this significant traction that that marketplace has and Tmall has in that market that for brand-building purposes as well as a, a, a commercial uh, goal. We we felt that it was necessary to test and learn and put that uh, brand on there. It's been a very successful partnership. We have a great relationship with Alibaba, um, but I would say that that market's evolving as well um, at a at an increasing um, increasingly fast pace. So things like chat are of uh, are ninety percent of cus- uh, customer interactions um, as opposed to email or, or phone, and so that requires us to adapt our our business model and localized for that market. And now whether um, it's through WeChat or others, you're seeing transaction. So they don't want just support. They want to be able to actually transact through chat. 
um, and being able to connect that platform into the site so that they could transact through the website as well as potentially in store. You, you get great learnings out of that market and how do you begin to apply those learnings domestically? Uh, it may not be one for one, but certainly those trends are going to be um, are that are emerging in China are likely going to migrate um, towards the states. It's interesting when we were expanding Channel Visor, you always would roll into a country and be like, "We know exactly how this is going to play." You go into Australia and you're like, "Here's what's going to happen in the next ten year, guys," and, you, and it happens, and you seem like you can read the future. Then you go in China and you're like, "What is going on here?" It's like this, you know, they're way ahead of us. So it's, I think it's interesting. It helps future proof your brand by you know having that experience. And then when that, if that comes to the U.S., then you you've kind of future proofed that, which is which is pretty cool. Have you guys saw on JD or just right on T-Mall right Just now? on T-Mall right now. We've had conversations with a number of, of additional third parties, uh, marketplaces specifically, but none that we felt were right for us at the time. But we continue to have open dialogue with them. Um, we've um, opened and, and had some conversations from a wholesale perspective. Um, what's important you know, for us, whether it's the right brand partner, are they going to represent our brand? Um, we're not looking to for significant distribution in terms of touch points, but we want the right partner um, in the right market. So constantly being uh, being out there and having those conversations um, are pretty critical to our future growth. Yeah. Did you guys last China question? Did you guys participate in Singles Day? And you definitely did. Yeah, that's pretty eye opening. It is. You're uh, used to Cyber Monday, and you've got kind of an event that's you know. Many times, as it's like eight times as big on average as Cyber Monday, and a lot of brands say that it it indexes ten, twenty, thirty times. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's pretty overwhelming, and they um, they start hyping um, more than a month in advance. Mm-hmm. Um, so they they encourage you to start seeding product. They encourage you to start um, uh, you know prepping deals based on um, wh- what. What you what you're looking to sell and how much you're looking to sell, um, where they could carve out opportunities. The first year we did it, we actually did a sweepstakes uh, as opposed to just a significant discount. Um, it was great for us as a brand. Last year we partnered with them on some content as opposed to again just a really deep discount. So how can we pull back a little bit on some of the promotional activities and instead use it as a brand building vehicle? And that's been that's been successful. I, I would say that the, the, the sheer, you know, volume in and around single stay in such a, a, a tight time frame is really what, what, um, what cyber Monday was kind of in its peak. Now cyber Monday is migrated to by Friday and it's spread out over more days. So there's less peak and Valley. Mm-hmm. I would say that, that, that China is, is still in the, in the, in the peak and Valley you know, kind of phase that it hasn't necessarily smoothed out at this point. It is, it is when you sit in the distribution center and you see all those uh, packages get packed up and sent out, it's, it's pretty overwhelming when you think of just the sheer volume that, uh, that has to kind of get consumed and, and delivered. Awesome. I'm, I'm actually just chuckling a little bit because it occurred to me uh, Columbus is this great retail hub and there are all these, uh, retail, you know, uh, integrated brands and retailers based there that are all having pretty good success in China. So now I'm imagining that Columbus basically celebrates Singles Day, right? That everyone at the Starbucks knows what's going on. Yeah, and it's because they're they're so far ahead from a time perspective. 
um, you're celebrating, um, you know, at, at lunch, yep. which is when they, they turn it on. Um, and you just, you know, you, it's like, it's like watching the, the slot machine, uh, watching the analytics on, on some of the build. Uh, it's, it's, it's pretty incredible. Very cool. Another question we got um, from Twitter, which is totally predictable question to get from Twitter, is uh, social media strategy, mm-hmm. right? So you know, you talked a little bit about China. There are lots of brands that tell us there can be a great ROI to the social platforms there. Like obviously, WeChat is monetized for a bunch of folks, or Line, or Kakao Chat. Talk to marketers in the U.S. And much harder to see a sort of a tangible green eye shade ROI from social. So I'm curious, like, do you guys use a lot of social? It feels like you're a very social brand. And is that a brand building activity for you? Do you have an attribution model where you think about it from a sales standpoint? Or how do you think about social? Uh, think about it a lot, especially when you think about our target customer. You know, 90% of them sleep with their phone. Um, and then, Why is that weird? I, I, I couldn't tell you. There you go. Um, uh, of course, that means that's their alarm clock, um, at least for now. Um, but that's uh, that's how they're interacting. That's how they're connecting. There's definitely a brand building piece on on how do you connect with the customer? How do you build a community? How do you um, how do you use that as a as a broader brand form? But you know, increasingly, when Facebook moved to a pay to play ad model. Um, increasingly you're seeing Instagram move to a pay to play ad model using a similar structure to what Facebook has used. There's a brand building piece and there's a monetization piece. And so it's a, it's a healthy balance between the two. We have attribution in place. I would say that, um, we're learning what works, what makes most sense. Can we get our finance people to, get on board with some of the assumptions that maybe we're making. But I think that the key piece is how do you evolve your, um, your branding and, and, and content uh, platform organization and capabilities to be able to shoot for the platform and support your messaging. It's not, it's not a promotional activity. So you're not going to post deals every day. It's, it's ultimately not, you know, large scale campaign content because, the, the, the customer's looking for newness on a consistent basis. So that changes as opposed to shooting five or six times a year. You might have to shoot 26 times a year where you're actually shooting every two weeks. And so that's a challenge, especially in a zero budget model where you're not getting increased funding. You just got to figure out how to rearrange the chairs, so to speak. And Wait, you, you guys don't have an unlimited budget. I wish we did. Um, unfortunately we, we, we don't, um, um, at least not yet. Um, I'm sure the executive committee all listen to our podcast, so that could probably change at any moment. This, this will be required listening. Of course. Um, I'm, I'm certain of that. <laughs> um, but it, it, social can absolutely be monetized. And when we look at not just, I'll call it referral traffic, which is, is, is a very simplistic metric. But you can look at retargeting, which has been a huge success for us. We can look at prospecting, which has been hugely successful for us. Um, lookalike modeling and laps. So um, as opposed to just bottom of the funnel or um, you know generic retargeting for what you get in display, you can be very prescriptive. And so how do you balance 
the, the, the branded content, which might not deliver a direct and immediate ROI with more ROI driven marketing to, to balance each other out. So, um, that's why we think it's critically important that the, the brand side and the direct side, the more creative piece and the more commercial piece work hand in glove. Um, because at the end of the day, you know, the customer wants to develop a relationship with the brand, not, um, focus on a channel. Where, where are your customers on social media? Cause it seems like, um, when you read all the, the press, you know, they've, uh, Pinterest is kind of older. Um, so that's probably not Pinterest. Everyone says millennials don't do Facebook. So it's usually the assumption would be Twitter and Snapchat. Is that you guys, is that kind of what you see or are those assumptions wrong? Maybe, um, they, they, they say they're not on Facebook, but you know what they say and what they do are, are maybe a little bit different. They're definitely spending more time on Instagram and, and Snapchat. Yeah. Um, we have a great relationship with, with, you know, both platforms. we got a great relationship with Google clearly, which we've had for a number of years. And so each one of them plays an important role in that broader ecosystem. It's, it's a question of, um, you know, how and where do we want, um, to, to interact with the customer and, and, and in what format. So if I were to take Snapchat, Snapchat's a pure kind of branding vehicle at this point, we're doing a number of, of, um, creative executions with them, with lenses, some localization, basically you walk into a Hollister store, it unlocks a number of lenses, which, uh, which you can utilize, take pictures and, and, and send. My, so it's my daughter loves those lenses, yeah. which, uh, so, they're fun. Yeah. It's adorable that you're attributing it to your daughter. Yeah. yeah. We've already heard you where you get all your music. Yeah. <laughs> Note to that's, self. That's research for the podcast. <laughs> Note to self. Do you guys do beacons? Um, I know that Snapchat uses more geotargeting from the GPS, but, uh, I forgot to ask the omni channel piece. Do you guys do beacons at all? We've, we've tested, um, I would say that, you know, that might not have crossed the chasm at this point. So we, we've, we backed away a little bit. Um, we're a little more interested in some in-store networking, um, focusing in on some of our better, uh, and larger stores from a productivity standpoint. So using that to drive connectivity, if you, if you ask most teenagers, they're, they're going to congregate where they can get connectivity. Um, so we'd love for them to congregate and hang out at our stores. Um, but you know, from a, from a social standpoint, it's, um, you know, it, it's, it's basically their, uh, their portal, their uh, entry point for, uh, interacting and developing, you know, relationships, whether they're, um, social relationships or branded relationships and, and they want to be a part of the conversation. So how do you invite them in? That's the beauty of, of Snapchat because they can participate in that. And that's, one of the beauties of Instagram because they can contribute that content. And now we want to be able to consume that and be able to um, uh, make them a, a part of the larger community, both on our website as well. Uh, one last question we got from listeners uh, and we're up against time, but th- three things you guys have found that engage millennials. And we, we've covered a little bit of that with like the lenses and things, anything else come to mind? Um, and you, you talk a fair amount. Um, you seem to mentally have kind of, added in Gen Z more than any other retailer I've talked to. Um, how do you define those two? What, what's your definition of those, those two audiences? I mean, Gen Z is a, um, you know, a younger consumer, I'll call it, you know, 14 and under, um, a, a, you know, a more millennial uh, consumer might be, you know, a little older. Our targets, kids is 12, Hollister 16, adults is, I'll call it, you know, 24. 
and um, that their their life stage is dictating you know what's what's most important to them, and so there's not unfortunately there's not one kind of secret sauce. I would say that um, having a differentiated point of view um, is certainly a critical way to engaging and connecting with that millennial consumer. It, it, they're not looking for a generic experience. They want to consume that socially. So your brand socially needs to be as consistent as the brand that you portray and and cultivate from an e-commerce standpoint and is the exact same as to what you portray in store. And so creating that that similar kind of connective tissue across the customer journey um, is kind of standard operating procedure for a millennial. They, they, that's frustrating to them if you can't connect those dots. So that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a big piece. I can tell you the number of times I get frustrated when I'm on a mobile site and I build a cart and I go to the website maybe to actually run the transaction and, and there's no cart even though I'm registered. Um, or I go into the app and it's not connected either. So that's a – and I'm clearly not a millennial. <laughs> I'm a little outside – the demo, um, I'm younger than I look, by the way. And um, that's, that, I think that's just, that's frustrating for them. And as a result, that's a bad experience and they're, they're going to abandon. And their threshold's really very, um, their pain threshold's very low. So the more you piss them off, the, the quicker they are to go someplace else. And you may not you may not get a second chance. So you hear a lot about customer journey and journey mapping. There's a lot of that conversation today. It's really about relevance and what's most relevant to that consumer. How do I be relevant during the discovery process and social? How do I be relevant to them from a transactional process? And then on a post-transaction, how do I maintain that relevance such that I can uh, potentially get them to come back and or advocate for our brand. And I think that that's, it's a really complex customer journey today. It's not as simple as buying TV or sending out a catalog or running a print campaign, much more complex. Um, and it requires a, a lot more, um, a lot more thought, but you got to be really customer focused and you really have to be able to test and learn your way into what works most effectively with your target customer. It almost sounds like you can't just follow your great grandfather's playbook. It's like the the world's changing. Very much so. I you know I, I I talk to my father about it all the time. What is consistent is you know great service, great product, great brands. Those absolutely t- stand the test of time. What's what's difficult is is how do I ensure that I can get my brand and my product and ensure that my service is relevant to you. That's becoming increasingly tough. Um, and it's only going to get more and more kind of difficult. And that's the part that's exciting to me, yeah. but retail didn't really change for, you know, a hundred plus years. And we're going through a, a fairly, um, bumpy process as we kind of continue to transform. But that's part of the, part of the excitement. Again, when, when my daughter is my age, uh, it's going to be something completely different. Um, and she may, is going to have very different expectations, and, and I, I love the idea that, you know, the, the three of us had the opportunity to help shape that. That's pretty exciting. I totally agree. I think we're at a very lucky place in the, the history of retail. Um, one last question. I felt like I know, knew you really well, 
Um, but I did right before the show Google you because I wanted to see if there's any aspects of your life I didn't know about. And I found a lot about this feud you're having with a sham wow guy. What What's that all about? Yeah, that was during my OxyClean days. Um, uh, or, you know, it, bam, sham wow. It, uh, <laughs> it didn't necessarily work out all that well. I am not that, that Billy Mays. Um, Billy, Billy oh. May, sorry. Um, he did have a beard. I, I, I also, I'm not worth what he was worth. And, um, I am sitting yes. with you guys and, uh, I am alive. Unfortunately, we're very grateful for that one. Knock on wood. Yep. Um, and I'm not Billy May, the jazz uh, composer and, and, and conductor. Unfortunately, he, he passed away a number of years ago. Very, very famous. Great, great musician, but, um, definitely sounds like clearly a name destined for success. So as usual, our time has flown by. We, of course, love all the feedback. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you'd write us a review on iTunes. And with that, until next week, all three of us would love to wish you uh, happy commercing. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Billy, for being with us today. Thanks for having me, guys. Happy Earth. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes and please leave a review. 